Time marches on and leaves behind those who are not equipped for tomorrow. We cannot predict what will happen in the future, but we at Regent University aim to prepare you for it. With world-class professors in over 150 programs, the opportunities to find success in your field are many. So don't let tomorrow pass you by. The journey to your brightest future begins here. Visit regent.edu slash learn more. Welcome to our podcast. This is another recorded episode of Stay Classy San Diego, with video production and studio provided by MaxLux Media, sponsored by Dorada Nutrition, with your host being myself, Steve Wire, a freelance reporter. This podcast is dedicated to fostering quality dialogue surrounding all things local policy related in North County, San Diego. Join us weekly as we interview political leaders, analysts, professionals, and community members on issues ranging from homelessness to housing density. Well, really excited about today's episode. Um, We're bringing in State Senator Catherine Blakespear, um, who represents the 38th District of California. Um, Catherine's been on the show previously, but I wanted to bring you in again to sort of discuss now that we're six months into your term in office um, as state senator to sort of update people on what you've been up to up in Sacramento, um, sort of how that relates to some of the things happening down here that people are concerned about in the district. Um, but just first of all, quick introduction. Um, Catherine Blakespear is the former mayor of Encinitas, was on the city council from 2014 to 2016, and then was the mayor of Encinitas from 2016 to 2022. She was also the former chair of the um, Sandag board. Um, she was a member of, um, she was part of the airport authority board, part of forming the, the CCE in Encinitas in the county, and was on the board of the water and wastewater um, board members. So I wanted to give us some, some introduction time to sort of discuss, like for you, um, telling people about, you know, six months into office, what sort of what you've been up to, sort of some of the policies you've been working on, some of the bills you've been introducing, and some of the, just basically um, what you expected going into the office and sort of how reality has matched that. So if you can just sort of explain to people, um, you know, the the first six months as as roughly as you can. Yes. Well, thank you so much for having me. Yeah. I'm happy to be here. Uh, So it's been seven months that I've been going um, to Sacramento. So I fly up on Monday and I fly home on Thursday. So I'm there most of the week. I represent almost a million people here, though, in San Diego County and Orange County. Um, So it's been extremely busy in that there's a lot to do in Sacramento, and then I come home on Thursday and Friday and the weekends, and there there are lots of important things to do in the district as well. So I would say that being a member of the legislature, there are 40 state senators, and so I... I go from having had essentially four colleagues, four city council members and one mayor, uh, to having 39 colleagues. And then there are 80 assembly members. And then there's the governor's office and all the, all the agencies that are associated with that. So it's a much bigger fishbowl in many ways um, than it was in Encinitas, even though I was involved in a lot of these outside county boards. Um, And so I think my expectation was that I would be more quickly working on big systems level change and that the things that I identify and many people identify as top problems in our state, like homelessness and climate change, um, would be things that we would be deeply working on. But the reality of having so many different people and the reality of also how change happens, which is it usually actually is more incremental. It's not you're not you're not usually making big changes, which is good that government isn't because you're not swinging wildly between different directions you're going, but it's hard to turn a big ship. So, you know, the state of California, 
as the fourth largest economy in the world, as a state with 40 million people. Um, there, are, there are a lot of, of, of things that have been in, set in motion and, and are the way that they are for a lot of reasons. So my initial feeling about being up in Sacramento was really trying to get my feet under me about how to be effective, how to make a difference. I'm on committees that I care about and requested. So I'm on the housing committee. I'm on the transportation committee. And the other committee is called governance and finance. And that's really related to local government. So I know a lot about local government and um, that's an extremely useful background. So there are a large number of things that, that the legislature deals with that having an understanding of how things work at the local level is just an unquestionable benefit. I think also the differences, there are some differences, major differences between serving as a, uh, an elected official at the local level versus the state level. So at the local level, a lot of the interactions and the policy decisions are, they're centered around individual people and their feelings about matters, whether it's the traffic outside of their home or the development patterns where, where homes are built uh, or zoned to be built um, or the, the large number of things local government deals with, which is law enforcement, parks, um, streets. And those issues really don't have as the interest groups. So in Sacramento, they're all interest groups. So they're, they're pro- highly professionalized, whether it's lobbyists or nonprofits or advocacy groups that, that have been hired to advocate for certain things. And so what that means is that there's less emotionality. So at the local level, the city council meetings were always, and I was, would run them as the mayor. I, I would, I would find myself um, up for hours after the meetings. You know, just ve- it, it, there's a lot of emotionality. Um, but in, at, at the state level, it's just highly professionalized. So that's just much less the case. Uh, but, it, but I do find that people at the state, at the in Sacramento, everybody is very high functioning, smart, highly engaged. Strong advocates have facts behind them. There's a lot of, of, of conversation, policy-level discussions that are happening all the time, and that's with my colleagues, but also with this professional staff who work for the committees or who work for me, um, and then also with just the, the, the outside, they call them third house, the outside of the electeds and the staffers who, are, who have opinions about things. Mm-hmm. Because if you're trying to make a decision about, well, what do we do about this problem, then asking people who represent the organizations that work in that space are one of the main ways you get a gauge on whether it's a good idea or not. So, I, you know, I had two bills. I don't know if you want to ask me directly about them, but I had sure. two bills I introduced on the first day within minutes of being elected. So I was sworn in, took the oath on the floor of the state Senate and then in January, and then I introduced two bills. One of them was about gun safety, so gun violence prevention. Yep. And what it would do is or would have done, would do, is it would require anybody who owns a firearm to have a liability insurance policy. So just like your car, it's required that your car, which is also a deadly weapon, uh, that you have a car insurance policy. This would have required gun owners to have an insurance policy as well. And in many ways, this makes a lot of sense because every single thing in our society is insured. So if you think about it, your life, you could get life insurance. Your trip, the smallest thing you might do for your recreation, you could get trip insurance. And every other risk that we might face is insured. But in this space, there is not a good gun insurance policy and it's really just not done. So the insurance industry was opposed to the bill. They didn't. They don't have a product. 
Um, and the gun safety groups were not enthusiastic supporters of it. They basically stayed off of it, meaning they didn't uh, come in with strong support. Um, and so what you end up with is not having the partners you need in order to move something forward. So I think even though it's a good idea and individual people think it's a good idea, and there are, were definitely some gun safety advocates who thought it was a good idea and came and spoke uh, in favor of it, in the end, it didn't even get um, an actual vote in the first committee. So it, it, it was one of those recognitions of of why it's so hard to make change. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was the first one. The mm-hmm. second one was about homelessness. Mm-hmm. Um, and you want me to tell you what that bill yeah, was? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. So that what that bill, my my local government experience is that the housing planning process um, is rooted at the local level. So there are more than 500 cities in the state, and each one of them has to plan for future housing growth by going through this process that's called RENA, Regional Housing Needs Assessment. And this, in Encinitas, was very controversial. But in many cities, it's actually not controversial. It's just a routine part of what the city does. But notably, this planning process does not involve a category for homelessness. So cities are actually not planning for their homeless residents to be housed. And when you look at homelessness, we have at least 170,000 homeless people in the state. It's estimated to be closer to a quarter of a million. So 250,000 actual households that would need to be built to house just the people who are living unsheltered on our streets and in our canyons mm-hmm. and in cars. Um, and this number is growing. So this is, uh, I, th- I think of this as an absolute humanitarian crisis, and we are not stopping the flow. The number of people coming into homelessness is far surpassing the number of people exiting homelessness into housing. So the core problem is that no level of government owns the problem. There's not the state, the county, the cities. Nobody sees it as their job to solve for homeless-serving housing. Mm-hmm. And and there are different parts of it with drug addiction and mental illness. The county has that role. There are different segments of homelessness, veterans, LGBTQ, foster youth, formerly incarcerated, people who are just simply poor, which is a large section, the, one of the largest growing sections over age 65, So there are all these different ways you can look at how do we solve homelessness. But ultimately, having that be part of every city's planning process to house the number of people who are counted in the point in time count on their streets as being homeless, to me, makes a lot of sense. So that actually did make it through two committees. Uh, But cities couldn't do that without an appropriation of money. So they would need money to provide opportunities for homeless-serving housing. And in the appropriations committee, uh, it didn't make it through. So it basically was turned into a two-year bill. Okay. And that, and so that, you know, those are the, my two really big bills that I introduced on the first day, and they're not moving this year. Sure. So, so it's an example of what I was in answer to your original question was is how difficult it is to make progress on some big things. Yeah, absolutely. So that's one one more follow up question on that is in terms of um, um, SB eight and then SB what was the other one? It's SB seven, SB eight, seven, SB seven. Yeah. So that experience like sort of then informed you in terms of. Like on the local government level, um, as mayor, um, you know, um, things happened differently. You know, things happened um, maybe more, is it safe to say more quickly, more uh, more rapidly than they do at the state government level in terms of the power that you have as, you know, a mayor, as a city council person versus the power that you have as a state senator to to make change happen overnight. So um, is was that experience for you uh, sort of... Um, discouraging? Was it um, sort of teaching you something about uh, that you like didn't know about how a state government works or sort of what do you take away from uh, how to like move, how to move these bills forward, how to move policy forward at the state level? Yeah, it's funny because I don't think anyone would describe local government as being fast moving. People are always saying that everything always takes so long, which is true. 
But part of it is that we have a robust public engagement process for many of the big questions, like development questions, um, especially when we're, we're in the coastal zone here in Encinitas almost exclusively, which means we also have the Coastal Commission. You know, there are a number of different uh, things that, that control what we can do. Uh, but I guess I would say I really just found my experience with SB7 and SB8 to be part of the learning process. I feel I feel highly engaged. I feel very active, mentally active. Uh, my time is very active. I've, thankfully, I'm in good health. So I feel like I'm really running at top speed. And that those experiences with SB7 and SB8, the homeless and gun safety bills, really just showed me what what is the path to be successful look like? These are some things to try to avoid next year. Like, for example, to have a bill that might be a good idea that individual people think is a good idea, but doesn't have support of organizations is probably not going to be successful. Mm-hmm. So having really talking for in the gun uh, violence prevention space, really talking with the gun safety groups about what what is on the table for support and what are the problems and reasons they didn't support this and is there anything we could do about that so that I could earn their support? Because, and it, it really does make sense that in some ways they're validators for all the other people who aren't involved in the gun safety space. Mm-hmm. You know, so what they think, and it's the same in the climate space or the housing space, there it's like, well, what do these other big organizations think about these problems or this proposed solution? Sure. So with, with SB8 specifically, um, before we move on, I just wanted to, to ask, like, um, you mentioned that one of the reasons you felt like the bill didn't move forward was because it sort of lacked support from these these key groups. And mm-hmm. I'm curious to know, do you intend on sort of maybe reformatting the bill or restructuring the bill or coming up with a new policy proposal altogether that you think will advance um, gun violence safety while um, garnering the support of you know the people that need to, to, to move this thing forward? Yes. I mean, I do expect to continue working actively in this area. I'm supporting the other important gun safety bills from other colleagues of mine and giving them voice and speaking at press conferences with them and uh, talking about them on the floor. You know, the, the different ways that you can be an ally to, to partners um, and my colleagues, I'm doing that. But sure. absolutely, I will be reintroducing that. And that one, that one is SB8. SB7 is the homeless one, mm-hmm. which is actually homelessness is the top issue that I really want to work on. And then transportation, which we'll talk about in a little mm-hmm. bit, I think. But those are really the three. Transportation, I think of is underneath a climate change, environmental commitments, the, you know, those are the three things. And I talked about them with you in the original podcast. Mm-hmm. And those are the, the same things that I'm continuing to work on. Sure. So let's talk about SB7 and homelessness for a bit. So um, I thought it'd be worth mentioning for the purposes of our conversation. There was a, a study that came out in just the last few weeks from the UCSF um, Benioff Homelessness and Housing Initiative, um, which looked into specifically the demographics of homelessness, like who is homeless and who is coming into the state homeless, who is, who's, um, who is homeless in our state. So it found that California's homeless population is predominantly made up of people who lived in the state before losing their housing with nearly half over the age of 50 and a disproportionate number who are black and indigenous, according to the statewide study, which was released last Tuesday. Um, so... Uh, this was the, the large examination of homeless adults in apparently nearly three decades. So I'm curious to know, for your purposes and as a state senator, I'm, I'm sure you're somewhat familiar with um, some of these facts. But like, how does a study like this inform, let's say, more a targeted approach of the issue, um, knowing like who is homeless, like why they're homeless? Um, like, does this tell you anything new, or how does this sort of like inform our approach as as state legislators to the issue? Yes, thank you. So I think that study is really important as are all the studies that come out that confirm the same 
statistics that people who are working within the homelessness space know, which is, for example, the widely believed myth that people are coming to California to be homeless, that they're put put on a bus from the Midwest or some other cold place and they're sent here to be homeless. That that is just really when you actually survey people, where was the place where you lived, where you lost your housing? It was here, and largely it's within the same county, if not the same city. And when you go around to actually talk to people who are experiencing homelessness, they'll tell you their life's. They'll tell you a little bit about their story, not their life story, but a little bit about their story that is would make every sense in the world. Like the idea that this is your community, you know, the public places here, like the beaches, you know, the things that, that matter to you, like your faith community or the schools you went to, or the places where you like to go, the parks, the, you know, you're not going to just uproot yourself to go be homeless in some other community because, because people want to be in the places that they are for all the reasons they're there, family, job, community, school, all those things. So that was one really important thing that we can, we need to continue to say, these are our people. Cause I think there's a desire to think that they're the other, there, mm-hmm. there are people from somewhere mm-hmm. else. There's somebody else's problem. We should send them back. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so there's that that's really important, but also what that study talked about was just the large number of people who are simply poor. They are living on $800 to $1,300 a month. And we know with the price of housing that there is literally nothing that is available in that category and that they were before they, it was a financial precipitating event that led to their homelessness. So they were housed. People largely came from being housed and then they became unhoused. And so what could we do? There's a lot of focus right now on prevention. What could we do? Are there, are there small amounts of stipends that we could use to keep people already housed? Fundamentally, though, that study also says that it's a supply problem. We just do not have the amount of housing at the, especially that's affordable to lower income people that 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 we can keep people housed. So, and if you think about some of the other statistics, like people who qualify for Medi-Cal are poor, poor people, right? Medi-Cal is supposed to be for people who are poor. And we have one third of our state on Medi-Cal. So you think about the reality of a, a minimum wage job or two minimum wage jobs, if there's another person who they're married to or, mm-hmm. or, or someone's holding down two minimum wage jobs, you know, or just people should be able to live on one, but they're just not able to earn enough money to do the things that you need to do to live, to pay for housing, transportation, food, you know, let alone uh, have the opportunity to rise, rise and to be able to access greater levels of success and, and personal freedom, you know, so, and then, and then the issue of drug addiction and mental illness, we just don't have enough beds. We don't have enough providers. Care court is aimed at that specific subpopulation, which is really important, but, but the, but the whole ecosystem of people who are homeless is a, a big, and I would argue the biggest problem in the state. And I'll just say from my perspective, I do not want people living in public places, I, it's not good for them. It's, it's, it, in many ways, it's completely lawless. Like there, people are not, I mean, the amount of, of, um, and it's underreported, but the amount of sexual assaults and thefts and, um, assaults, uh, all of that is just not what we want for people. Mm. And it's also, you know, it does pose a hazard to the people who are w- trying to walk down the street or have their kids going to school, that kind of thing. Um, but also, and importantly, to me, there are two sides to it. It's it's not good for them, but also our public spaces need to be available for the public to use. Mm-hmm. We have public parks so that families can go to them. We don't want to have our downtown streets, the bridges overlooking the freeway, our canyons, our riverbeds, the environmental disaster of people 
defecating in the river and their trash going in the river. And just, it's just a disaster. And so one of my, and I think I'm a little bit unusual as somebody who's progressive, but feels very strongly that we should not be allowing encampments. So I've very much supported the city of San Diego's recent decision, pushed by Mayor Todd Gloria, and, and then mm-hmm. five of nine council members voted for it. To ban, but uh, to ban, to ban encampments, mm-hmm. um, essentially at the point where we have enough beds for everybody, but within two blocks and of certain sensitive areas, to not have encampments at all, regardless of the number of beds that are available. Because I think we could, ver- we are creating this society where we're tolerating the creation of shanty towns. Mm-hmm. This, this, group, this idea that people are going to live for years in public spaces, not fit for human habitation, figuring out how to survive, because people do figure out how to survive, and we're, and we're not going to prioritize building enough housing for people to live inside. And I think that's a profound mistake. We, we don't fundamentally have the public commitment, the public investment, the political will right now. I am not seeing it, and it's a big disappointment. Probably my mm-hmm. biggest disappointment mm-hmm. going to Sacramento now is that there's just not the urgency around homelessness that there needs to be. Mm-hmm. And there are people living in tents within the shadow of the Capitol. So this is, this is a fully developed downtown urban area where people with the dog and the dog food and all their stuff, I mean, they are camping there permanently. And yeah. For some, for some reason, this has become okay. So yeah. I do feel like we people have a right to housing and then they have an obligation to use it. And we should create that society, which we have traditionally had, where we've had a, a smaller, much smaller homelessness population and people have lived inside. We haven't, we, you know, you see in some other countries um, the, these massive shanty towns. And I just, we, I don't think we want that in California in this country. No. We can do better. Yeah, absolutely. No, I mean, it's interesting because you mentioned that San Diego's um, pushing to ban encampments. And it seems to me, and I could be wrong, but it seems to me the last few years that I've been in San Diego, that like downtown especially, like the visibility of the problem is, is so much worse than it's ever been. Um, as not, and not just downtown, but, you know, throughout the county. And I'm curious, like, you, you, you said something really interesting. You said that you feel as though in Sacramento, like the political will to, to make changes isn't quite where it should be. And I'm curious to know, like, why, why you think that is? Because it seems like, again, the visibility of the problem, like you talked about even the Capitol, um, again, has, has never been worse. And, like, where, where, what do you think has to change, like, culturally in, in government for, for there to, to be that, like, sense of urgency? Well, I think the tackling the scale of the problem, given the structure we have in California, which is in a lot of the United States, but we have a basically a private property structure of home ownership and home development. So the government's traditional social safety net things, like we do provide schools and we provide for roads and we provide uh, some ma- hospitals. We provide some major supports for people, but we have never seen housing, like housing as a human right, we've never seen that as being equivalent to something like schools, where we need to provide massive amounts of money every year for every kid to be able to go to school. You know, this is this is a commitment and, and it's an ongoing commitment because and it's also it's it's it goes all the way through college, right? Mm-hmm. So we support the UC system and we support the um all of you know K through 12 and then beyond basically with a lot of money. And so Having that be like a carve out or something that's part of the state budget. I mean, this year's state budget is over $300 billion. It's a lot of money. But 
but it is not it does not have a large amount for homelessness so we've been talking about just 1 billion for homelessness that is largely goes to large cities so it's it goes through this program called hap and counties also have it and they could it, cities can apply for it but basically we don't have the financial commitment to providing housing that would be necessary and i think there has there i don't see the will for that and part mm-hmm. of it is Whenever you start to get into a homeless discussion, it really is like, well, where does the money come from? Do we try to generate a new revenue stream from some, some, there, there, there are a lot of different places, bonds and things you can get a new revenue stream, taxes and fees, bonds. Um, but is there the will for that? Is that something that we think is important? Or is there a way that we somehow are incentivizing the private market to provide this better? And I think that's what we've done. If you look at how do we provide low income housing? There, we, are, we have, in large part, the upper-income units subsidize the lower-income units because when there's, when there's a development that's built and it's 100 units and 15 of them are low-income, those, those 85 are supporting those 15. That's how that works. They also get tax credits, so the government is supporting it. But essentially, we don't have a public housing system. We don't build public housing. And so how do you get to the point when you have a market failure around housing where we're not providing enough supply, people can't afford to live inside with the amount of money they make? You know, all of these things go together around the minimum wage and poverty and um, building patterns and building construction. And I mean, all of it, you start to pull on a thread and you just get into every single possible other problem. But to me, that's why this is true of almost every problem. What you have to do is you have to to try to filter out the noise and say, okay, so it's not noise, but it's complexity and mm-hmm. say, what can we do? And this is what I always tried to bring to my role as mayor is these are problems, but what can I say yes to? What is a discrete sure. thing that's possible? And because politics is the art of the possible. So it's looking at the things that seem fixed. Sometimes you start talking about things and things that seem fixed end up not being fixed. That's actually how change happens from the bottom up anyway. Um, and so, so, but how can we do something? And so on my, on this RENA homelessness housing bill to make every city plan for homeless serving housing, I don't know if that will be the second generation of that bill or if there'll be something that seems more possible because, because of the, the realities, the financial realities of what's required there. Um, we'll see. We'll see yeah. what happens from that. Hey there, San Diego. If you're on the hunt for a way to enhance your health, I have a great recommendation for you. Dorado Nutrition is a company that's all about helping people live their best lives through top-notch American-made supplements. Their expert team has crafted products to support a variety of health needs, from weight management to muscle building and more. And with ingredients like Vidogia Agrestis and Tonkat Ali, praised by a well-known neurobiologist seen on the Joe Rogan podcast, these supplements could be just what you need to reach your health goals. And for a limited time, you can get 25% off your purchase by using promo code SD2023 at checkout. So if you're looking for a way to improve your health, Dorado Nutrition might just be the solution you need. So we've, we've talked a bit about the, the housing side. I also wanted to talk about something you touched on in terms of, you know, the, the mental illness and the, the drug abuse component of homelessness that we all agree, you know, is, is very important as well. Uh, you mentioned the, the Care Court initiative, um, which was um, started by 
believe it was the governor, um, Gavin Newsom. Um, and I, I wanted to just talk about that for a minute. So the, the CARE Accord initiative, you know, it recently survived um, a law, you know, a lawsuit that was trying to stop it. And so it looks like it's going to go ahead and take effect this fall. Um, supporters of the CARE Accords program say that it will revolutionize California's approach to treating those with, with disorders, um, with, with psychotic disorders and addictions, many of whom are also homeless. Um, and once implemented, the, the program essentially will allow family members and behavioral health providers, among others, to petition a judge to order an evaluation evaluation of an individual, and if warranted, a treatment plan that it could include medication, housing, et cetera. So um, this program seems very, um, very potentially transformative. I, I wanted to hear your thoughts on, you know, first of all, um, you know, it, it sounds like you support the program, but sort of what do you support about it? What do you, um, what do you like about it? Um, what kind of impact do you think it'll have? Yeah, well, you know, we closed all of our mental health hospitals essentially uh, with Reagan. So there was, yeah. there was this, this one... One flew over the cuckoo's nest was if you think about what what we were seeing in that book and and these depictions of people who who are being over medicated and abused and sent places to die and they're locked up you know these are the excesses right so the, so it's so there was a feeling of we can't have that so we need we're going to let people out there are civil rights and people will be on their own there were spo- we were supposed to create community clinic settings for people to get treatment but that really essentially didn't happen at the scale that was needed so now over these many generations or not generations many decades what we've seen now is that we have a lot of mentally ill and drug addicted people living on the street and and they don't have anywhere else to go. I mean, there are, you can't just, they can't just go get in line and by the afternoon be in the drug treatment program. Like even people who want it, let alone people who don't want it, you mm-hmm. know? So, so you think about, so, so care court is aimed at, it's this type of conservatorship reform, which is I think really important to say that there are people who are literally killing themselves, dying on the streets in front of us. And we as a society are watching this happen and it's not humane and it's not good for anybody else who wants to be using the streets as well. And it's not good for them. And so what we need to do is get them into a system. So we need to take, get them before a judge, have them be put into treatment, even if they don't consent. And that's the real rub of this is how, what do we do about a lack of consent? Do we do it anyway? And, and so one of the bills that we passed off the floor of the Senate was redefining what gravely disabled is. Mm-hmm. Because right now, if somebody is acting completely crazy or they're naked or they're defecating, or they're urinating on the street, they're masturbating, they're doing these like crazy things that you see. What is a police officer's ability to intervene with that person? Yeah. And if if the definition is so narrow that they're not a threat to themselves or others, because those things I just described are not a threat, mm-hmm. they're just clearly very antisocial behavior. Yeah. You know, you want to be able to have an analysis that says gravely disabled is broader than just a threat to themselves or others and that they can be taken in and, and they can get treatment. The issue really is how... Are they going to get treatment? Do we have enough beds? Do we have enough slots? Do we have enough people hired to do that work? So, so the, and the counties are very involved in this right now. It's a top, top focus of theirs. Sure. Because ultimately, cities do not have the capacity to provide mental health and drug addiction services. Those, that is the core of county mental health services, human services. <clears throat> Excuse me. So yeah. they need to have the money to do that work. Sure. Do you feel as though, like, counties um, and local jurisdictions are getting that support from the state where um, they can, like, actually make a meaningful 
like sort of dent in the problem, like in terms of the mentally ill, in terms of the drug addicted. Um, I mean, we've talked about the lack of beds, you know, the lack of lack of resources. Like, is there sort of the will from the state, do you feel like, to the sort of backup um, assistance for these people at the local level? I don't know. I guess what I would say is there's a lot of focus on accountability right now. The reality that that $17 billion has gone out for homelessness and homelessness is getting worse in double digits. I mean, so it's like, where is this money going? And mm. and so the, the word accountability is used a lot in Sacramento right now to apply to this homelessness analysis. And the thing, the idea is, if you're going to be receiving money, we need to know that it's working. But the issue, and this is what I say again and again, and I'm on the audit committee and I said it there too when we're, is accountable to what? What, what is the goal? Because a lot of times the answer is we're serving people, we're answering phone calls, we're providing information, we're providing food, we're providing resources. What does that mean? Because to me, it has to be accountable to becoming housed and staying housed, right? So the goal has to be that somebody who was going to become homeless didn't or who was homeless became housed. Not that it's kind of like saying meetings were held. Like meetings were held doesn't get you anywhere, right? It has to be that something happened from that meeting. And so this is the definition of what is accountability. That's where a little bit, I don't know if there's the clarity that I've seen on that. There's definitely not the desire to put in a lot more money without better accountability. Hmm. But this goes to the core of who owns the problem, which comes back to my bill, because it's like, who is actually going to be responsible for housing homeless people? And right now we're still in this position of it's the counties kind of, it's the cities kind of, but not if they don't want to. City hmm. of San Diego wants to, but what about the other 17 cities? Sure. I mean, look at North County and this critical shortage of beds. I mean, to shelter beds or long-term permanent supportive housing, all types of beds, critical shortage. But And there's no urgency or requirement. Cities, I mean, I don't believe cities are acting with the urgency. And in many ways, it's because communities want someone else to handle the problem. They want to, you know, they want the city of San Diego to do it. They want to send them back on a bus, these types of things. Yeah. So ultimately, somebody, some level of government needs to really own it. And I think, and say, we, we, have, we will receive this money and we will provide the housing. Sure. Um, when it comes to the like going back to Caracor, I mean, uh, there's sort of this this difficulty that that you run into, which is um, you know housing and providing services for people, but people who don't like accept services, you know, people who um, you run into the problem of. And I, I've interviewed you know people in social work and people who um, you know do these things on the streets, and you know the reality is that a lot of people just you know, simply refuse services. So is this program and other programs like it with Care Court sort of aimed at meeting people where they're at in terms of people who are simply unable to sort of accept services? Because that seems like a huge part of the problem, too, that doesn't always get talked about in terms of, you know, you have a segment of the population who um, they just, they don't want housing. Well, okay, they, yeah, I mean, Care Court is for people regardless of what they say. I mean, yeah. it's not, this is, gets to the consent question. Like yeah. it, it, regardless of whether they consent, they're put into the system to be, to, to be helped, mm-hmm. even if they don't want the help. Yeah. But I think that it, that it needs to be even broader where we need to say to people, you cannot camp here in the shadow of the Capitol or in this riverbed or on the downtown streets. You can camp over here in this other place that is controlled, that's overseen, and that is not a pu- the public spaces that the public's trying to use. Sure. So, so having, even for people who, who decline housing and they don't have mental health and drug addiction, you know, that, that, that they should, we should have controls over where, peop- where everybody can live. Because sure. I just don't think we should have people living in public spaces. Sure, yeah. 
I, I wanted to to move on and talk about something that you, you touched upon earlier at the beginning, which is um, the issue of transportation. Now, broadly, transportation has been a huge issue in, in San Diego County with um, Sandag having you know passed the, the RTP um, in what was it, 2021 now? So that was almost two years ago. Uh, but there's also something that I wanted to talk about, which is um, you actually wrote an op-ed, I believe it was this year, earlier this year, mm-hmm. in the Orange County Register talking about um, you know, progress that needs to be made on the Los Angeles rail, rail Corridor. Um, now, the Los Angeles Corridor stands for Los Angeles, San Diego, San Luis Obispo. Um, it serves about six counties with a population of around 20 million people and has to do with the movement of freight and passengers through the region. It's the second busiest intercity passenger rail corridor in the United States. So um, a lot of a lot of traffic moving through there. And I just wanted to give you a chance to sort of explain to people um, sort of the argument that you made in the op-ed and sort of why, why we can do better when it comes to reinforcing um, the, the infrastructure around the corridor. Yes, thank you. So I, I think this is a five-alarm fire. I mean, we have one rail corridor in this county that goes this 351 miles from San Diego all the way to San Luis Obispo, and it is not working. So what we have is the reality that in San Clemente, the corridor, the train, the train has only run through there for less than a month of time in the last seven months. So, and that's because debris is falling onto the tracks and in two separate places, they've had to close the tracks to make sure that it's actually safe. And this is the beginning of this cascade of problems. We saw it happen in Del Mar as well, where it's right on the bluff and the train had to be closed in order to shore up the bluffs. But the goal of this, I have a subcommittee of the transportation committee, which has on it the senators who represent the rail corridor or the closest to the rail corridor. And the goal of the subcommittee is to raise the profile of the entire corridor, this whole 350 miles, as an actual thing. Because right now, we don't actually have any advocacy for the corridor. What you have is individual advocacy from individual transit agencies or individual members, like about Del Mar. Uh, But you don't have somebody who's saying, we need to have more transit, not less. We need freight to be able to be on the corridor instead of on the five freeway, creating a lot of congestion and pollution. Um, And we want to have train, we want to have a train that works. And so unfortunately, I think, you know, this is the beginning of a really important process. But unfortunately, the governmental structure of having these multiple different agencies that oversee the corridor, it really is not set up for success right now. So part of the the goal is to, to, to really evaluate if we want this corridor to be resilient, we want it to function for the next 100 years, we want people to be able to take transit, what do we need to do? And I think we need to move parts of it away from the bluffs because a lot of it is right next to the ocean. Not, not away from the bluffs, away from the coast. Mm-hmm. So go into a tunnel, go inland, divert around. And we need to be able to do this with some urgency mm-hmm. because otherwise... What I think, why I call it a five alarm fire is that we need to be creating more transit options, especially fixed rail. And we're, what's happening is we're, we are slowly coming to accept that it's not going to be a, a possible option for transit. Because when you have to take an hour bus bridge that goes from Irvine to Oceanside, you do not see that as a train trip. You know, and, and also just the delays on each side, getting on and off of both trains and buses, getting back on it. You know, there are people like I have friends uh, who are my age whose kids go to school at San Luis Obispo and they used to take the train all the way home. And they could even do that on the weekend and then go back to school. But now they either go to Irvine and their parents drive up there to pick them up or they don't come home. 
or they hitch a ride if they can find one or, you know, but it's like taken off the table as an option. And there are lots of people who would use it to commute to work. There's, there, there are so many reasons that people want to take transit and take the train versus driving. I mean, it's just, it's obviously substantially less stressful. It creates a lot less emissions. So for climate reasons, we need to be investing in this. And, and I'll say I was really sad to read in the newspaper that North County Transit District, NCTD, when I was on Sandag, we um, helped them, provided monies for them to buy new locomotives. And they, the news article said that they are going to be selling the locomotives because they can't mm. find the money to staff the new trains. So basically, you, whenever you're running a train, you need to have money to, have, to pay the staff. And part of the, that ridership problem it's ridership is at about 50% from pre-pandemic levels. It went up to 70%. And then because of the closures in San Clemente, it's fallen back to 50%. And so when you can't, when you don't provide a service that people want to use, people stop using it. So it's this race to the bottom of, so we have fewer trains Mm -hmm. and then we have, and, and then they go less frequently and then fewer people take them. So the investment at the county level, which would which would be potentially a sales tax or other type of investment, money from the federal government or the state government, this was also highly contested how much money the state was going to put into transit. Because some transit agencies are what at what they call a fiscal cliff. So if they don't receive money, they're not going to be able to operate. Because transit fundamentally is not self-supporting. Mm-hmm. So it needs investment, public investment. It's not fair, fair box recovery of $2 for a train trip or $6, depending on what whatever transit you're taking, is not does not allow for the system to be able to, to pay all its bills. So and and we do traditionally we invest transit is about fourteen percent. Well, I'll just skip that stat. It's too complicated. But anyway, we need to do better. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, one thing I wanted to ask you about is um, I, I've never gotten your opinion on this, but there's um, you know the longstanding thought that you know we've sort of turned our back on any hope for for high speed rail in California, and um, it's sort of become this almost a uh, graveyard of, you know, efforts and, and money that were poured into the system um, for the purpose of, you know, emulating the high-speed rail systems that we see, for instance, in Japan or um, I believe in certain parts of Europe. So um, I'm curious to know, like, I- I've never asked you before if you have an opinion about sort of the status of that and whether that's like um, something that we should not be giving up on versus um, focusing on the rail that we, improving the rail systems that we have, improving the infrastructure that we have already. I mean, I think my biggest picture thought is that the prioritizing should be around the rail we already have and making yeah. it making it more successful, making it sustainable. This high speed rail now has been has been reduced down to Bakersfield to Fresno. So the 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 train, the high speed train, would go Bakersfield to Fresno, which you know maybe there will be some benefits to that. I. Unfortunately, it's not going into the Bay Area. It's not coming down to LA. Mm-hmm. It's not connecting to our major population centers. Sure. So it, it's disappointing to see because I think there are some transportation agencies that are actually really well run. Like Caltrans is actually extremely well run. They have a lot of technical expertise. Over decades, they've delivered projects consistently. And you see that even in our county here, the I-5 freeway being widened. They're on time. They're on budget. Um, and they have they have an in-house professionalized engineering and technical uh, staff that can do the job. Um, and so with high-speed rail, it seems like we got off into a different 
way of doing that, which was more consultant driven. And I don't have my arms around the high speed rail completely. I'm not, mm-hmm. I'm not inside of that discussion, but sure. the amount of money that's being spent on it every day versus even ever, you know, it's more than a million dollars a day, I'm pretty sure. And that's, it's, it's just a worry that, yeah. that that's not of high value, but it's coming from cap and trade funds. It's not part of the current budget. And when we're talking about the state's budget for the year, we're not talking about that, that bucket. And, I, and that might be talked about in committees I'm not on, but it's, you know, what its future is, I don't know. Sure. But I do, I do really feel like we should be investing in the transit and the rail that we have yeah. as the top priority. Do you think that it's a matter of, um, you talked about some of the ways in which you would advocate for strengthening existing rail infrastructure on the, the Los Angeles corridor, but um, do you think it's also a matter of expanding expanding the, the existing rail um, to other parts of the state um, to sort of streamline um, transit access like further? Yeah, well, yes. And I, I've ridden the train in Europe, in Japan, yeah. and seen these incredible train systems. In Britain, the, the, the train... And when you see it, and in Japan, seeing the high-speed rail and thinking, why can't we do this? Like, it doesn't make any sense to me that we can't do this in California. The the whole way that decisions are made and the prioritizing and the all the different interest groups, it, I don't exactly know what it would take. But I, I do, my gut is that our commitment to the car culture in California and in this country makes that kind of project very difficult. And mm. our, you know, our suburban sprawl patterns, and there are many mm. places, I frequently reflect on the reality of transit and what it, because it's such a key part of a climate approach, you have to have better transit. You can't have really so many cars. It becomes unsustainable. The mm. congestion is unsustainable, and then the emissions are unsustainable. Not everybody will have an emission-free car. Cars themselves aren't emission-free in their creation. We know from the batteries and all the other things. So, so we, we need to have better transit. But I'll drive around even in my district in Orange County and just think our development patterns are so dependent on the car mm-hmm. that it's just very hard to conceive of this transitioning. I, I recognize it as a major barrier. But I still think we need to do what we can and we could be better. Like even if we have less than 1% commuting um, on the train track right now, could we have 5%? Sure. And that would be a big improvement. And there, are, I think there's a hunger among people to do it. They would love to take the train. It's just about, really, it's the finances, it's the governmental structure that would support success better, um, and it's ultimately having the political, the political and social will for it. Sure. And you see, even in this county, I mean, having the will to have a sales tax measure that would invest in transportation in general we've, has been very rocky. You know, half of the Sandag board didn't, doesn't support that. And, they're, you know, that's the transportation board in this county. And they're not wanting to find a, a local revenue source that could augment what we're doing. Sure. Um, on that, that note, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, climate change, the environment, because um, transportation is sort of wrapped up in that discussion of, you know, the emissions that are produced through transportation um, through, you talked about the, the car culture and sort of the unsustainability because of the emissions that are produced by all the cars in California. So in talking about that, um, and I know we, we touched on a couple of the bills that you brought up, but is there anything, um, any policies right now that you're really focused on or that are um, kind of the subject of discussion in the state Senate in terms of moving California towards its, um, you know, pretty ambitious and lofty climate change goals? Because, you know, we have this goal of um, net carbon neutrality by 2045. Is that correct? Um, so, like in terms of getting us there and sort of furthering that um, the Governor Newsom's plan, um, sort of 
some of the bills or policies that are, are being brought up right now that would get us on the right track? Yes. So right now, the hottest topic that's being discussed probably this minute, I mean, on the 23rd of June, uh, which is right before the end of the month when the new budget year starts, July 1, is around streamlining of environmental projects. So the governor is really focused on on saying we, we need to access federal infrastructure money and because there's an unprecedented amount of money available. And in order to do that, we need to basically create the path for shovel-ready projects. We need to be able to streamline clean energy projects, transportation projects, um, the Delta Tunnel, so basically water-related things, very controversial, which projects and how much streamlining. And so what's interesting is that I think a lot there are a lot of people in the Senate, it's a very active climate caucus, climate voices, people who are actively involved in the energy space and the emissions reduction and all of the different fingers that that goes into. Um, But this question of to streamline the creation of the projects that would deliver that, how much streamlining, because our CEQA, our environmental law, CEQA, um, the California Environmental Quality Act, what, what it allows for are lawsuits. It allows for the Coastal Commission review. It allows for community input at levels that can lead to this analysis paralysis, where you end up with a years and years and years long process before you can actually build anything. And there's discussion about so many multiple alternatives. But the question of how to streamline it and how much is really what's in very hot dispute right now. Because of so many people's feeling, which I I also share this, but it's this balance of we want to protect ecosystems, we want to protect habitat. When you have Home, when you have, like, for example, it, it, in, in Imperial County, which is our neighboring county uh, to our south, um, it's hot and dry and they have water rights. But now they have a lot of solar panels because they have a lot of land that has a lot of sun and they can't grow anything. And so they're selling their water rights so that people like us can have water to drink. And then they're building all these solar panels. But what's the environmental effect of that? And you see these big, 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 big solar fields. And that just the reality of, of the effect on our state's environment to, when you do that. The other really hot topic is um, wind energy in the ocean. So mm. how, how, what is the effect on the marine life and the ecosystem in the ocean? So I, I do think that this is something that is being worked out right now. And I lean toward the we need to expedite and streamline more because I, it, I very much value our CEQA laws, but I, I do feel like they can become excessive in their application. So the amount of time things can go on, the amount of, of lawsuits, and, um, and it, it just it really can lead to a lack of progress. And, sure. and we need to make urgent progress on climate change. Yeah. Well, and one, one thing on that note is um, I wanted to bring up, uh, there was actually just in reviewing today um, beforehand, I, I noticed that there was a, a new study out from the National Academy of Sciences about wildfires. Um, that's, you know, essentially, uh, you know, there's been this wild, huge surge in wildfires, obviously, in the last several years that's destroyed nearly 40 million acres across um, um, you know, the country and in California, you know, millions and millions of acres as well. So, uh, but they, it's attributed almost entirely due to climate change and due to extreme weather events that are facilitated by climate change. So, um, I, I wanted to ask you, like, in terms of wildfires, in terms of, you know, these extreme weather events, um, sort of what, uh, is the sort of the level of urgency at the state level? in terms of, you know, mitigating some of the worst impacts of climate change while also, 
you know, going towards some of the more fundamental underlying factors um, that are, you know, leading to this in the first place. So sort of that balanced approach of, you know, how do we, you know, mitigate the the real um, immediate impacts of wildfires, of, you know, extreme weather events, and also like addressing the more underlying factors. Yeah, well, addressing the underlying factors is one of the things that seems to also be really hot right now is this idea of carbon capture. Mm-hmm. So, and I've I've recently saw this article where there's a bathtub and we're filling up the bathtub too fast, right? The spigot is still on. So, we're creating all this carbon, all this emissions, the climate is heating, and as it gets to the top, you can't you can't just exp- expect that it's not going to overflow unless you open the drain. So it's like the opening of the drain is let's get all, let's collect this carbon and put it into the deep in the ground or let's put it in concrete, things that are, or, or this blue carbon where it's sequestered in marshes. And, you know, but is that, what's the science or pseudoscience? You know, how effective is that? What's it really doing? Is this, is this greenwashing? Is this real? You know, there's a lot of, of that kind of discussion about trying to get at the underlying causes and deal with climate change. Um, but then, you know, on the, to the wildfire point, the, these some of the things we could be doing, like the prescribed burns, which which create more fire, but it's on purpose and it doesn't get, get out of control. Um, and, you know, we do have more money for that. A lot of our forests are, are federal, so we don't have control over the type of forest management that happens. I really value our forests, as I think so many people do, and feel like we need to do everything to protect them, the redwoods and sequoias and all of the national and state parks we have in the state. You know, this is just such a critical part of having a livable state and loving our planet and wanting it to survive, that that doing everything we can to protect that is really important. Mm on the, the front of renewable energy, we had a discussion in our last podcast where you, you know, we talked about sort of the state's level of investment in renewables. Um, and we talked about that largely in a conversation about the local level since, you know, you had just finished your time in local office. Uh, but I'm curious to know on the, on the state level, has your approach changed at all to that issue? I mean, I know, for instance, um, one of the things we talked about last time was that you are more on the side of caution when it comes to investment in, for instance, nuclear energy because of your concern over waste storage. Um, On the state level, I'm curious to know, because um, there was a recent decision last few months about Diablo staying open um, for a longer period, I think past 2030. Um, On the state level, I'm interested to know, like, have you... uh, do you still kind of hold the, the, the same approach that you had at the local level or sort of how is how is being a, a state center sort of evolve your approach as in terms of renewables, in terms of your approach to things like nuclear energy? Yeah, well, I think I go back to the fundamentals, which is we need to have a reliable grid. So I see that as something that should always be kept in mind. While we have these outsized targets, these, you know, years 2045, 2035, we want everything, every car, every airplane, every ship to be carbon free, to be um, all of our buildings to be decarbonized. You know, these are very ambitious goals and how, how we get there and then realizing we actually need to keep open some of these gas peaker plants because we don't have the battery storage. We don't have the alternative sources of energy mm-hmm. to be able to have our economy function. I mean, to me, that seems like those are reasonable choices that you, in the real world you have to make. Mm-hmm. So although ideally we would be able to, to just all of a sudden become clean and green, 
that's just not the reality. So and I, and so I remain a realist in those ways of mm-hmm. saying, yeah, we'll, we'll, we might have to keep things open longer. We still don't have any long-term storage. We don't even have short-term stor- storage options for nuclear waste. Um, so and there's movement a little bit at the federal level, which is great, but we need to continue to work on it. But I I do. Th- think you don't get anywhere without a goal. If you don't have a goal, you don't know where you're going. So it's really good for us to have these goals and to be working toward them. Uh, but in the meantime, we also have to be realistic. Sure. Uh, one more question on that is um, the, there's been sort of this rise across California and um, specifically in our in your district as well of CCEs um, in the last um, few years, I would say. Um, and, you know, there's the CCE in, um, San, in San Diego County that Joe Mosca is involved in um, that you're familiar with. And I'm curious to know, like, in terms of the rise of CCEs, um, like what your thoughts are in terms of the ability, uh, the importance of sort of this regional partnership of cities and jurisdictions coming together and saying that, you know, this can't be accomplished at the individual municipal level, but this has to be sort of this communal, regional um, partnership of sorts, um, and how you see CCEs as being instrumental to the success of um, you know, meeting our, our state goals. Yeah, so CCEs are able to be much more nimble and much more aggressive with these climate targets. So because they're based locally, they can also be responsive to local communities. Like in Encinitas, we voted to have 100% renewable energy be the default, which means that if you want to have a slightly lower bill, you can opt into dirtier energy but you're automatically opted into the 100% renewable clean energy. Mm-hmm. And that's the kind of thing that an investor-owned utility doesn't, doesn't make those same calculations. So the CCE, is, which is Community Choice Energy, which is several cities coming together to create, to create this um, organization, allows for that kind of thing. And I think that's really important. Sure. So what the, the energy, what, how does the energy market look in the future? It's tremendously complicated, and I don't know what the role of CCEs versus investor-owned utilities versus some other thing will be. But I know that that it's real. The role of who is distributing the energy, the electricity, especially as we continue to electrify more and more and more things are electric. Uh, you know, it is really important. We need battery storage. We need to have all these alternative sources of energy. One of the hottest topics right now is hydrogen's role. Because hydrogen, there's hydrogen, if you think, this is my understanding, is if you look out and you think, are we ever going to be able to actually wean ourselves off of gas and oil and be 100% electric? The answer is no. Because some of these um, heavy-duty trucks, long-haul trucks, ships, things that, that trains, they, they need to have an energy source that doesn't have such a massive battery. Mm-hmm. They're just not able to, it, it won't work. So sure. hydrogen needs to be part of that. But then what is hydrogen's role like in the passenger vehicle, the, the light duty vehicle, all of our mm-hmm. cars? Um, and how much should state investment set be, be neutral as to the source of energy or to have a carve out for hydrogen? Mm-hmm. This is something that's really uh, hotly debated right now. People come into my office to talk about this topic a lot. And where do you, where do you sort of stand on that debate? Or, I mean, I think we you... need to continue to invest in hydrogen. Yeah. Be- be- ultimately, because we're not going to meet our green energy goals without it, mm-hmm. and uh, and electricity did receive a lot of subsidy um, and continues to, and it and it needs that, and we but we we need the government to be behind both of them. Sure. In closing, I just wanted to ask you, other than the the things that we've talked about today, just sort of other goals that you have. Um, Outside of the the specific bills that you've sponsored and put forward, maybe some other goals that you have for your term. I mean, you have several years in front of you. Um, like, 
Is there anything um, other than that what we've talked about already that's sort of a, a long-term or or short-term goal of yours that you want to accomplish um, during your time? Well, one of the things that's great about my current role is that I have a staff. So as a mayor, I didn't have any actual staff. They all work for the city. Yeah. But but I have district representatives who work in both Orange County and in San Diego County. Um, and then I have a staff in as well in Sacramento. So it's a total of 13 people. And representing the com- my, my office and the community and helping people with our problems is really important. Because it's interesting because in the best version of the world, you don't ever need someone to hold your hand while you're interacting with the DMV or the EDD or getting your reimbursement check or something, your nursing license, some problem that people are having with the state level. But the reality is people do have problems and they need somebody to help them, to hold their hand, to make sure that their call gets returned or that they're able to resolve the problem. And my staff is working to do that in the district all the time. And we have really great success stories, which we put in my newsletter every week, one example of it, so that people know what we're here for. Because it's just like if you're trying to get your passport and you and you have a trip and you can't get it, you reach out to your congressman's office, congressman or congresswoman. You know, when you have problems with state agencies, you reach out to your to your local electeds. So it's important to me that we are accessible, that we're helpful, that we're smart and engaged. And I feel r- grateful that I have a, a really great staff because we've really hired great people who are doing that part really well. Um, and then I want to represent the local interests. So like, for example, I had a bill that would have helped Del Mar to be able to build its housing requirements partially at the Del Mar Fairgrounds. And the Del Mar Fairgrounds Board was involved in this negotiation. It's been ongoing for a couple of years, actually. But the state bill would have uh, put a timeline around it and helped establish that there was state support for this. It was up to 61 units. So the Del Mar Fairgrounds is more than 300 acres. So this is this would be a relatively small portion. But... Um, but that bill, you know, that's a local, that's an effort for me to help a local city accomplish its local goals. Sure. And, and that, that's something that I'm, I'm committed to doing and will continue to do. Yeah. So I want cities and I want local people to, to, to reach out to me, to offer their bill ideas, to help affect big level change, but also solve their small, discrete individual problems that substantially affect their life and then everything in between. Because, you know, some things are at a municipal level and some things are at a state level and some are at an individual level. Sure. Yeah. You want you want people like hearing this to understand that they can reach out to you, that they can be engaged in this process and that it's, it's not just all you, but it's like a you know collective effort in terms right. of what comes before the state legislature, what what bills you sponsor. You want to hear from people and you want to get that, that feedback. You're welcome to reach out to me at senator.blakespear at senate.ca.gov. Awesome. Um, well, I just wanted to say thanks again for coming on. You know, I, I really felt like it was, it was good to do a part two to our first interview to sort of check in because, um, you know, that was right after you had been immediately, literally days after you'd gotten elected. And I, I think that this was good in terms of, you know, providing people an update on, you know, what, what it's like up there and sort of also, you know, what you're passionate about and that, you know, you're not just this, um, sort of, you know, disconnected entity up in Sacramento, but that you're, you're actually working on stuff that the constituents care about, things like the environment, things that our residents here in District 38 really care about. So I thought it was, um, it was good for that purpose. And also to understand, you know, how state legislature works, to understand, you know, the intricacies of, you know, things don't get done overnight. You know, things happen in a, in a process, and it's different from the local process that, you know, you were familiar with as mayor. But 
I found that interesting as well to, to that, get that added perspective. So thanks again for coming on. Um, really enjoyed having you. And um, maybe in a few months, we'll make it a part three. So. Well, yes. Well, I should come back in six more months. So at the six beginning of the next, uh, yeah, yeah. The next term. We'll, we'll keep it going like that up, up, up until uh, you're up for re-election or whatever your plans are. So, um, yeah, thanks Thank so you. much for coming on. And, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll do it again soon. All right. Thanks, guys. This has been another recorded episode of Stay Classy San Diego with your host, Steve Wire. Thanks again to our sponsors, MaxLux Media, MaxLuxMedia.com, and Dorado Nutrition at DoradoNutrition.com. And thanks to all of our listeners for tuning into the show. See you next time. Stay classy. Cable news, noisy, boring, out of touch. That's why Salem News Channel is different. We keep you in the know. Streaming 24-7 for free. Home to the greatest collection of conservative voices like Dennis Prager, Jay Sekulow, Mike Gallagher, and more. Salem News Channel is unfiltered and unapologetic. Watch anytime on any screen at snc.tv and local now channel 525.